Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's Focus for Tuesday, January the 3rd, 2023, at 10.32 a.m. Central Time. Today's focus, you can probably guess. Today's focus is the conclusion of our look at eight made-up Bible verses. Eight made-up Bible verses. Now, this came to me in an email, and then I did a little searching, found that the email actually was an article that was posted on the internet, and the article claims that Christianity made up eight Bible verses. Now, in reality, the article doesn't actually claim that Christianity made up eight Bible verses, as much as the article is really claiming that Christians made up eight really concepts or ideas or, or claims or, or doctrines. Because only, only a few of the claims really focused in on one Bible verse. Some of them really looked at a, a bigger issue. For example, like, well, Christians teach that the world is evil. Where, Well, no, actually, Christians teach that the world is under the curse because of sin. So you're, you're making a claim that's not actually consistent with what Christians actually teach. So that's an example where it's not really down to one Bible verse. Other, other of the claims actually focused in on one Bible verse. And I was hoping all eight would focus in on one Bible verse, because that's much easier to deal with, right? Okay, you're claiming we made up this Bible verse. You're claiming that the Bible verse actually teaches this, and then we made it up. Well, then you can look into it. You can do hermeneutics. We can study it. We can figure it out. But if you just kind of say, well, you Christians claim this, and then if what you're claiming is not even what Christianity teaches, well, then at that point, I kind of, you know, you, you kind of get dismissed as not really being fair or accurate, but this is very important. Whenever criticisms are leveled at Christianity, whenever someone makes claims, whether I agree or disagree with them, I always want to at least consider their claim as, cons as much as possible because I am constantly aware that I am not infallible, but I'm very fallible, so I'm always willing to be challenged and willing to learn. So I've tried to take all of these claims as seriously as I can. Some of them I have been very dismissive of because I think the claims are just crazy. Others of them I I have gone, "Whoa, that okay, that let me let me think about that." And we have worked our way through them and today we finally conclude a look at these eight. So let's let's we'll do a quick review. We don't have time to to talk about each one, but just to make sure you know, let me find here. Here is the article, and I've actually found the article on the internet. Like I said, the email just they cut and they they basically uh, cut and pasted. But this article was written by someone by the name of Jonathan Paletti. Uh, Jonathan Paletti. The article was written on December the nineteenth, or published on December the nineteenth, twenty twenty two. I found it at Medium dot com. Uh, I subscribe to medium.com where I can read all the articles. So um, this is where it was taken from. Again, the uh, the email just cut and pasted it and didn't uh, cite a source. So now we know the actual source. And remember the title of the article and the subject line for the email was eight key Bible verses were just made up. And then underneath that, it says Christianity invents as needed. 
And then it says, when I grew up in church, what people called Christianity mostly boiled down to a couple of Bible verses, which I don't know what kind of Christianity this person grew up in, but any Christianity that is, can be reduced down or boiled down to a couple of Bible verses, is there's major problems right there because it, it requires the whole Bible. It really does. Uh, you can't boil down Christianity to a couple of Bible verses. It just doesn't work that way. Then the person writing the article said, or wrote, I learned later that they were all faked. So these, that Christianity is boiled down to a couple of Bible verses. And according to this individual, they were all faked. And I'm like, that, that's, a, that's a major claim. And so far, they haven't been able to prove in any way, shape, or form that anything was faked. What it has demonstrated is the person writing the article seems to not really care to actually listen and to actually pay attention to what's being said and really trying to understand it. Look, it's look, it's one thing to say, I don't believe it. It's one thing to to uh, to disagree with it. But if you're going to be dismissive, at least be dismissive based off actual understanding because if you're dis if you're dismissing something that you don't understand, it just it, it, well it becomes obvious. So here are the eight that supposedly were made up. Number one, does Genesis say the world is evil? No one says that Genesis says the world is evil. Everyone says Genesis says that creation is now under a curse because of the fall, but that we as human beings. We are evil because we now have a depraved and fallen nature. So we are evil. We have an evil nature, I should say, and, and to, to be as theologically correct as I can. So this is a completely misunderstanding. And I, they don't bother. I guess they never even bothered to actually look at what Christianity actually teaches. Who knows? I don't know what they were doing, but they didn't obviously bother to do any research prior to making such a claim. Number two, and number two is their best one. Because it does bring up something that many Christians may not be aware of, and, and, and it, it forced me to really think this through, and I don't have a definitive answer yet, but it's a good one. The, number two is, uh, is everyone desperately wicked? And they claim that Jeremiah 17, 9, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Basically, they claim, hey, this is just made up. That's not what the verse actually says. They claim the verse actually says the heart is more closely kept than anything and humanity. What human being can know it. Now, here's the issue. The Hebrew text clearly seems to be the, the correct understanding of the Hebrew text is the heart, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, has a completely different translation and changes the meaning of the verse completely. It, the Septuagint reads, the heart is deep above all else, and so is man. Who shall understand him? So yeah, which one, the Septuagint or the Hebrew text? Which one should we go with? I, I, I think that raises some serious questions and we could have that conversation. But here's the problem. This person didn't bother to go, well, wait a minute. Even if we throw out Jeremiah 17, 9, and I go from Genesis to Revelation, we can still demonstrate and prove the depravity of man without Jeremiah 17, 9. 
So the, he didn't prove anything. He just, German, so Christians have built this entire doctrine off one verse. Rarely does Christianity, well, they shouldn't build an entire doctrine off one verse. So this one, again, is a misrepresentation. It brings up a great point, but still misrepresents the fact that the rest of the Bible teaches it. Number three, according to this individual, Matthew 5, 28, which says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. According to them, th that this verse is not referring to Jesus condemning inner erotic interest as being wrong or bad. That, that, that according to them, I don't know what it's supposed to mean, but they, 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 they go a completely different direction and uh, we won't go back through all of it. It was... That one I just kind of looked at like, what are you talking about? Like, I, it, it didn't even make any sense to me, but okay. All right, number four. This one was even more bizarre. They claim that 1 Corinthians 7, 9, which reads, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And they argued burn there doesn't mean burn with desire. It means burn with grief. So this has nothing to do with sex. This has something to do with a person going, I am grieving so much that I'm single. Well, then you need to get married. However, the entire chapter is clearly about <laughs> sex. So, so they, they, they ignored the context. So they blame Christianity for supposedly just making up a verse where, well, they completely ignored the context that would help us better understand what Paul was trying to say there. But Again, I can't spend all my time reviewing these. Number five, uh, does God tell you to spank kids? This one was based off Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates the children, hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. According to this article, the word rod there is, should not be understood as an instrument of punishment, but as an instrument, uh, uh, as a symbol of authority, maybe, as something that guides, that heals, and that this has nothing to do with spanking or corporal punishment. We, we tried to consider it, but we looked at the rest of Proverbs and, and, and the meaning of the Hebrew word there. And, well... The, 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 put it this way, this is definitely not a fair and balanced look at the situation. Number six, does purity mean virginity? Now, according to them, what they did is the word pure, they said, has nothing to do with virginity or sexual purity. It has something to do with other things. So therefore, the Bible doesn't have anything to say in regards to, you know, premarital sex, which again, completely ignored the rest of the Bible and what it says about sexual morality. They just focused on the word purity and said, see, the word purity has nothing to do with virginity. So therefore the Bible doesn't condemn premarital sex, which is just a complete bizarre, like this person demonstrates, they don't even know how to handle the text. Just you, you would start from Genesis or you, you could just start say new Testament, Matthew to revelation and say, what would be the conclusion on the biblical teaching of sexual morality Ignore the word purity. You would still come to the fact that sex would be f within marriage. That I, I don't know how else. <laughs> look, I mean, look, I can understand everyone's desire to change the Bible so that we don't feel guilty. I understand that. And if you want to play that game, well, let me start. I'll start because I've got like, I'm going to just throw out pretty much everything because I'm guilty of everything. But I, I digress. All right. Number seven. Is faith believing everything you're told? This one was so frustrating. This is the one we covered yesterday. 
very frustrating because <laughs> what? Any Christianity that says, hey, if you have faith, you just believe what you're told. That is just ridiculous. And I, I don't know where I don't know where they came up with that idea. I know some Christians try to present that idea and I reject it completely. If I think if you have a strong, mature faith, you will question and you will doubt and you will struggle because your faith is so strong and mature that you can. It's a weak faith. It's a it's a it's a immature faith that typically can't question and can't doubt because it can't handle it. It just can't deal with it. They the person falls apart. So then they just have to this is the way it is and don't don't bring up any questions. So that brings us today to number 8. And I know we've already gone 13 minutes in just the review, but that's good. That's okay. This is the final one in the series, so I don't feel bad about doing that. Are you ready? Here is number eight. Here is the one that they say, another one that they say we just make up. Here we go. Do you ask the Holy Spirit into your heart? Now, when I when I looked at this one, I thought, okay, are they going to go after this idea of Asking, like, are, is this all about this concept of telling people they have to ask the Holy Spirit into their heart? Is this about decisionism? Like, what, what are they, what is, what's their issue here? When you read this, you'll find out that their issue really is something else. Just pay close attention. Here we go. I grew up being told about God being a trinity and the Holy Spirit was a personality of God. And they're all male, of course. Now, just remember, the Trinity is one God, co-equal, co-eternal, three distinct persons. He just described the Trinity is that the Holy Spirit is a personality of God. Now, I don't know what he means by personality. Do you mean one God, three distinct persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. So I don't know if this person really even understood the doctrine of the Trinity. And I don't, what, what, what does he get caught up with? They are male, of course. Like, well, what is it? Obviously, Jesus was a male. Okay, obviously. And obviously, God the Father is referred to in masculine pronouns. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as he. I guess that that is a... That's troubling or, or to some way or shape or form. That's some kind of scandal that they're referred to with male pronouns. The horror. I, I don't really understand why the person is so bothered by that, but okay. So here's what they do. As it turns out, this is the article again. The pneuma, a word of neuter gender, means air, breath, or wind. On no evidence... Christianity capitalized it as a name and called it a male personality. There is no Holy Spirit as a named aspect of God. That's a Christian invention from kook mistranslation. Wow, that's some serious claims right here. All right, according to this article, the word pneuma, it's a word of neuter, gender, means air, breath, or wind. And they said on no evidence that Christianity capitalized it as a name, called it a male personality, 
Okay, I don't know if we called the Holy Spirit a male personality, but okay. They say there is no Holy Spirit, and they capitalize H and S. So in other words, there is no capital Holy Spirit a, a as a named aspect of God. And I don't know what you mean, a named aspect of God. Again, using very questionable language and even trying to show that they understand the concept of the Trinity. They said that this is a Christian invention from a kook translation. Now, I don't know, or a kook mistranslation. I don't know which translation he's referring to, but we'll see. He goes, as Paul Robertson details in a 2014 study, pneuma was a regular concept in the ancient world. It referred to an idea of a flow of life energy through living beings. When people were sick, their spirit was low, he writes. Pneuma was understood from um, um, onward, as, for basically, so they say Pneuma was basically understood as an active, life-giving physical force present both in the individual's body, brains, eyes, and bloods, and in the surrounding environment, specifically the air. So in other words, they saying that, that, from, uh, that from a certain time in history moving forward, spirit or pneuma was just like a life force, uh, uh, some kind of a physical force that was in the body and in the air. The holy pneuma is not asked into the heart as Christians often say. Well, I don't know where anyone says we ask the Holy Spirit into our heart, but okay. It's poured, Romans 5, 5, placed, 2 Corinthians 1, into the heart. It's not a divine personality. The Holy Spirit is a substance. And then the last sentence is, when I read Robertson's paper, I recall, I looked up and thought, Christianity didn't know the first thing about this book, right? Because so, so this is, if you look at the logic of this, Paul Robertson is the, is the standard. He is the standard of truth. And Christians don't understand that book, so therefore we're all foolish. But I think this individual may be demonstrating he doesn't understand the Bible. It's just like, so you don't want the Bible to be the authority. You want this other thing to be the authority. And then you're claiming that Christians need this other thing in order to understand the Bible and that the Bible is all made up and fictitious according to this individual. But let's, let's try to think about this, all right? Now, again, today's focus... We don't have time to take this all apart, but here's what I want you to do. Here's, here's my challenge for you today. You can just start with the New Testament because doing the whole Bible would be difficult, but I would challenge you and you, could, you can use Blue Letter Bible app or whatever, just type in Holy Spirit. And I want you to go from Matthew to Revelation and I want you to just see how the Holy Spirit is described. Now, I agree that there are times the Holy Spirit could be argued that it's described almost in a, you, you, that there's certain language used about the Holy Spirit that you could say, well, that seems to destroy the personality of the Holy Spirit, and it almost turns it into an impersonal thing. I will acknowledge that there may be some language, but if you take the overall language used in the Bible to describe the Holy Spirit, would you say the Holy Spirit is described as a person or would you say the Holy Spirit's described as an impersonal force? Now, he's arguing that the word pneuma, but it's the word pneuma. Now, I'll give you an example. We'll just, we'll just do a little bit of work here. We won't, we won't be able to complete all of this, but we'll do a little bit of work. All right? 
If you go to Matthew chapter 1, all right, Matthew chapter 1, I think the first time Holy Ghost is used in the New Testament, I believe it's found in verse 18 of Matthew. I could be wrong, but I'm almost 1,000% positive. It's the very, yeah, I'm looking right now. It's the first time that it's used in the New Testament. And here's how it's used. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And it is capitalized. Now, you could argue that maybe there shouldn't, it, you know, that in the original manuscripts, there weren't capitalization, so maybe it shouldn't be capitalized. You can make an argument there, but how is the Holy Spirit being described? Well, the word spirit there, and we, we, will, we, will, we will see what we can verify or agree with or disagree with in, in, from what this article is claiming. If we go to Matthew chapter 1, go into the Blue Letter Bible app, Matthew chapter 1, I go down to verse 18, and we look up ghost, okay? That's the word pneuma, right? It's this Greek word. Strong's G, 4151, pneuma, pneuma. All right, pneuma. Now, it is used 385 times in the King James, 385 five times. Now, immediately that tells me something. The person who wrote this article, I guarantee you did not bother to go through all 385 times Numa was used. I guarantee you didn't even bother to do that, didn't even work through this. This was just like, hey, I think Christianity made up stuff and they, were, and they came to this conclusion by looking at what somebody said. They looked at what one person said and said, see, Christianity made this up. Numa is not the third, Numa cannot refer to the third person of the Trinity. No, no, no. Numa has to refer to an impersonal force. It cannot be ever described as the Holy Ghost and then capitalize it because it's not a person, it's it's something less. But you would have to go through all 385 uses of it. Now, the word pneuma, Strong's definition, yes, it can refer to a current of air, breath, blast, breeze, um, uh, of, the, of the human rational soul, uh, the mental disposition, um, it can also refer to an angel, demon, or divine, God, Christ spirit, the Holy Spirit. So in other words, it has a lot of different definitions. If you look at the outline of biblical usage, it's got everything. There's so many different things this could refer to. So they are absolutely right that pneuma can simply refer to air, breath, something kind of more impersonal. It, it can, there, there's no question it can. But here, here's, this is what happens to people who seem to have no actual training and how to deal with the biblical text. What some people do is they just look up the, the basic meaning of a word and they're like, oh, look, 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 the word can mean this. So that's what it always has to mean. Now, we all know that when you're dealing with the biblical text, we look at the Greek, we look at the Hebrew and we're like, okay, that's what the word can mean. But We've now have to look at how it's used throughout the Bible. And guess what? Sometimes we'll realize a word that can have multiple meanings, the, which meaning we go with in many cases is determined by the context in which it is used, not just one part of a definition. And the context, in many cases, gives us which way to go and how to understand it. 
Now, they are, he is, the, the author is arguing that we should never refer to the Holy Spirit as a person, simply as an impersonal force, meaning this destroys the concept of the Trinity completely, destroys the concept of the Trinity, and that Christianity just made it up. There is no third person of the Trinity because there, there is no person of the Holy Spirit. It's just an impersonal force. That's their claim. Now, here's what I would want you to do. I'd want you to go from Matthew to Revelation, look at everywhere Holy Ghost is used, and just see how it is described, how the Holy Spirit is described. I shouldn't even refer to it as it, but how the Holy Spirit is described. Is it described as an impersonal force, or is it described in a different way? Is, is, is there ever like, well, wait a minute, that seems to go beyond just an impersonal force. And, but they're claiming Christianity just made this up. According to one article, many people find the doctrine of the Holy Spirit confusing. Is the Holy Spirit a force, a person, or something else? What does the Bible teach? The Bible provides many ways to help us understand what the Holy Spirit is. What the Holy Spirit is truly. Okay, let me read this again. The Bible provides many ways to help us understand that the Holy Spirit is truly a person. That is, he is a personal being rather than an impersonal thing. First, every pronoun used in reference to the Holy Spirit is he, not it. Now, you would have to verify that. I'm not asking you to believe that. I'm asking you to verify that. If you go from, and I, and again, I would just tell you to start from, go to Matthew to Revelation. Just keep it in the New Testament. You can expand it if you want. And just look for all the pronouns that are used in refer, reference to the Holy Spirit. Is he referred to as a he? The, this article is claiming that's just made up. Well, because, and, and they're basing it, well, see, Numa can just refer to this impersonal thing. So therefore, that's how we have to always understand Numa. But clearly the New Testament is going with a different idea because it's adding pronouns to it. And it's obviously adding he and not it. Why is that? The original Greek language of the New Testament, they say, now this article claims, is explicit in confirming the person of the Holy Spirit. The word for spirit, pneuma, is neuter and would naturally take neuter pronouns to have grammatical agreement. Yet, in many cases, masculine pronouns are found. And then they quote John 15, 26. We'll just look at this one. John 15, 26. I know this is going longer than I'm supposed to, but I'm not going to worry about the time. John 15, 26. Uh, John 15, uh, John 15, 26. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the father, he shall testify of me. Referring to the spirit as a he, uh, giving it a personal pronoun, referring to the spirit as a person, not an impersonal force. And I know the word pneuma gives the idea maybe of an impersonal force, but the New Testament does something different with it. Why? And then they uh, also quote John 16, 13 through 14. They say, grammatically, there is no other way to understand the pronouns of the New Testament related to the Holy Spirit. He is referred to as a he, as a person, 
And I think you will see that. But I want you to see that. Don't, don't take my word for it. Do it for yourself. Just go from Matthew to Revelation and just, just, just do a search for all the verses that reference the Holy Spirit and just say, how is he described? How is he described? Or how, uh, see, saying how is he described, you're already kind of, maybe you could be argue that you're going in with a presupposition. How is the Holy Spirit described in the New Testament as an impersonal force or as a person? And then I would just challenge you to read the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed to show you how the Holy Spirit is referred to in the early creeds. In the Apostles and the Nicene Creed, is it referred to as an in? Is the Holy Spirit referred to as an impersonal force, or is it seem that the Holy Spirit is described? I don't know. As a third person of the Trinity, as as something more than an impersonal force. It's just weird that this, this is where the person goes. Hey, Christianity made up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's an impersonal force, and the, and Christianity to sat down one day and said, you know what, guys. We're going to turn this impersonal force into a person, and we're going to say it's the third person of the Trinity. We're just going to make all of this up. Well, what would lead them to, if you're going to accuse them of making it up first, why would they make this up? Because it seems like it just adds more confusion than it does anything. And secondly, so why? who was the people who decided to make this up? And they're saying it's based off some kook translation or, or kook mistranslation, but it doesn't identify which translation got it wrong and what were the early creeds which what what was the mistranslation that they were using so according to the and and you say why would i take the time to do this because when we have to be prepared to give an answer and the best way to give an answer sometimes is to so know the Bible that when people make some of these claims, we can immediately detect, even though we may not have an answer, we can immediately detect this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're making a claim and you don't even know what the Bible says. This person clearly has not gone through all of the references, right, of Numa, and seen how many times Numa clearly is referencing a, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is referenced in terms that would give the personality of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to see it for yourself. It shouldn't take you too long, but I would like you to work on that today. And then maybe we'll come back and do some more like expansive teaching on the personality of the Holy Spirit. I just thought that this was a weird one to end with. Like this person was like, hey, I was raised in Christianity and it was boiled down to just a couple of verses and they were all faked. And one of them that was faked is I was told that the Holy Spirit is a person and it's not a person. It's not a person. I'm like, so that's your, <laughs> okay. But uh, I, I, I think that, you would have a hard time. I, I think that no matter what we would show, the article seems to be trying to make, I'm trying to follow their logical argument. Their argument seems to be, whatever you find in the Bible, it doesn't matter because this other guy wrote a book that claims Numa is only about, and that guy's right. And I'm like, well, I probably could find other people who've studied Greek or Hebrew and say, hmm, it can also mean this and this and this and that. I guarantee, but like he found one book 
And he's like, that's it. That's it. The whole reason Christianity doesn't understand is because they didn't read this book that was published in 2014. You're right. Christianity was making these claims going all the way back to the Apostles Creed. <laughs> that, that, maybe, maybe that's why. In fact, we'll end with just reading the Apostles Creed. Let's just do that. Let's just read the Apostles Creed. And then you you can see. I know I, I gave it for you as homework, but that's okay. The Apostles' Creed. Let's just read the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, no, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't give much information about the Holy Spirit. It just says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy and Spirit is capitalized. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Now, it doesn't give us a lot of information, but the Holy Spirit is mentioned as, just please note, the Trinitarian concept. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's that's clearly giving me an idea that it's more than just a, you know, an impersonal force. An impersonal force. And then if we look at the Nicene Creed, we look at the Nicene Creed. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who is spoken through the prophets. Now that's the, the Nicene Creed adds much more. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. So now there's the Nicene Creed, clearly speaking of the Spirit as far more than an impersonal force, something clearly more personal and connects with the Father and the Son and is glorified with the Father and Son, clearly raising it to the level, a quote unquote, raising the Holy Spirit to the level of deity Therefore, obviously confirming the idea of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed, that's 325 AD. Now you could argue that, see, they made it up. They made it up. But then you can go to the text of scripture and see what you discover. How would you, like if you, if you had no understanding of Christianity, zero understanding, you didn't know anything about Christianity and you just started reading about, and, and, and you started taking note of this thing, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And you, and you were just to start trying to write down everything you could learn about the Holy Spirit. What conclusion would you come to? An impersonal force or a person? Would, you, would, would, you, would the Holy Ghost be, is it given the attributes of God? Is the Holy Spirit given the attributes of God? Well, it's holy. The Holy Spirit, I think, is referenced as eternal. So now we're getting close to deity, right? And then, well, you can go from there. All right. Now, I know that took 35 minutes, but I wanted to conclude our look at these eight claims that Christianity just made it up. Now, they definitely did a good job in, in causing us to have to consider the Hebrew text versus the Septuagint when it comes to Jeremiah 17, 9. 
This one here is just mind-boggling because it seems like the person doesn't really even understand the Trinity. And it's just weird that this is the thing that, you know, this person's like, like, basically, I'm not a Christian anymore because Christianity just made it up. And the thing they made up is the word pneuma. It's an impersonal force. So the New Testament should never, should never do anything different than, are you sure that you are, like, what, what, what makes this book that you read more authoritative than the Bible? Now we're arguing over sources of authority. But at least understand what the Bible actually teaches. You may reject it, but at least understand it. So for everyone's own benefit today, focus in on the personality of the Holy Spirit. And the way to do this is go from Matthew to Revelation. Every time the Holy Spirit's mentioned, just look at how the Holy Spirit is described. Impersonal force? Or is there some sense of person, some equality to the, the Father and the Son? I mean, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, now you're baptizing in the name of all three. That would e- that places the Holy Spirit equal with the Father and the Son, right? One God, co-equal, co-eternal, three distinct persons. I'm, so I'm, already, I'm already trying to help you through this. All right. You can email me your thoughts. News, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. We can do more work on this later. And then hopefully tomorrow, we'll get back to a more 15 to 20 minute level, uh, 15 to 20 minute time frame for the Today's Focus podcast series and try to get this a little bit back on track. I thought this was going to be simple and it turned into something bigger than I, I should have realized there was just no way I was going to talk about these in 15 to 20 minutes. And uh, well, there's just no, I mean, how was I going to deal with that in 15 minutes? (laughs) No way. There was no way I was going to be able to do that. All right, we'll stop for now. I'll take about a 10 minute break and then we're going to come back. And well, we're going to be reviewing a sermon We're going to be reviewing a sermon that, well, there's lots of news articles being written about because they're accusing the sermon of having heresy in it. We're going to find out together because I stopped reading the news articles as soon as I found the name of the sermon. I'm going to to upload the sermon and we're going to listen to it together. I'm not going to tell you what the supposed heresy is because I'm not going to read what the supposed heresy is because I don't want to know. I want to go into it as it as with as less information as possible. And then when we're done reviewing it, we can determine together, is it heresy or were the news articles not fair? And we'll be doing that in about 10 to 15 minutes. And if you want to listen to us live, the Church One app is the easiest way to do so. Download the Church One app, Church, O-N-E, Church, O-N-E, do a search for Theology Central. Once you download the Church One app, that turns it into the Theology Central app. Have all of your notifications on. And you'll know when we go live here in about the next 10 to 15 minutes as we work on a sermon review that should be a lot of fun. All right. Thanks for listening to today's focus for Tuesday, January the 3rd, 2023.